Talk RL. This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Natasha Jakes is a PhD candidate at MIT working on effective and social intelligence. She's interned with DeepMind and Google Brain and was an OpenAI Scholar's mentor. Her paper, Social Influence as Intrinsic Motivation for Multi-Agent Deep Reinforcement Learning, received an honorable mention for best paper at ICML 2019. Natasha, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. You defended your thesis just last week, is that right? Yes. How does that feel? Um, feels good. Uh, it's not, it wasn't quite the rush I was expecting because, um, there's still a lot of bureaucracy in terms of like finishing my PhD. Like I have to finish the edits on the thesis and hand that in and everything. So it doesn't feel like it's totally over yet, but, uh, it's nice to have the stress kind of like easing off. So that's good. So we can't quite call you doctor yet, but soon, right? Exactly. Exactly. What was your thesis about? Basically, my thesis tries to say that uh, in order to improve deep learning models and machine learning models and uh, make them more general and able to adapt to new situations, we should try to integrate forms of social and affective intelligence. So different forms of social learning or learning from humans. Um, In particular, when you're learning from humans, can you use like affective cues about uh, their preferences to learn from them? Did you go into it with that plan and did it turn out how you expected or were there some surprises along the way? Uh, not at all. Um, so there was this definitely significant drift in terms of my research area. So when I started my PhD, I thought affective computing was the coolest possible thing you could do. And that's why I wanted to work with my advisor because she's an expert in that area. But after I went to my first NeurIPS, I w- kind of fell in love with machine learning and deep learning in particular because it just seems like There's so much progress happening there um, and so many new abilities that are sort of being unlocked for AI as a result of deep learning. So I became very excited about that um, and did these internships and um, really enjoyed that and shifted my focus to more like algorithmic contributions to deep learning and deep RL. I did notice that on your Google Scholar page, it shows that you have a paper from 2013 on POMDPs. So that suggests you've been in this space for a while. That's true. I mean, I think when I started out, I was doing much more applied work. That paper on POMDPs was how do you model people's emotional states with a POMDP? It's not really like innovating on POMDPs. So that's what I mean in terms of things have shifted. What do you see as grand challenges in the areas of AI that you focus on? Generalization, I think, is uh, one big challenge. So um, especially with DeepRL, we just know that it's very brittle. So people have shown like you train something on an Atari game and then you just slightly shift the colors and it totally collapses. It can't play anymore. Um, and so that's just going to be way too brittle for uh, deploying these models to the real world. We're pretty far from like a, you know, a robot that could climb up many different types of real world stairs, for example, even though that's a relatively constrained task. So I think trying to solve this problem of um, robustness to different types of variation and generalizing to new and related tasks is, is a huge challenge problem. You've done research at three of the most prestigious AI research organizations in the world, DeepMind, Google Brain, and MIT. I'm sure not that many people could say that, and this is before you completed your PhD. I wonder if you could share with us any thoughts or impressions on how they're similar or different, like maybe in terms of their culture or their approach to research? Sure. Um, So, I mean, they're all great places to work, and I've 
been very lucky and enjoyed my opportunities at all of them. Um, I can definitely talk about the difference between Google Brain and DeepMind. Um, so the standard line is basically like DeepMind is very top down. I heard that a lot before I ever went there. Um, but what that means is that DeepMind is very mission driven. It's very focused on um, what how we can actually improve AI and even how we could make it to AGI, so artificial general intelligence. And um, it's it's very much like there are projects that fit into sort of a hierarchical structure and um, it's, it's very organized and very driven towards that goal. Um, and I think it, that allows it to get a lot of good work done. And, and I very much enjoyed working there. Like, yeah. Um, but Google brain is more uh, um, kind of loose and free and you can sort of self-organizing, you can put forward whatever you want to work on. It's fine. If you want to go off in your own direction, there's not that much like dictation of, of what to work on. Um, and so I, I've heard this analogy, and I don't know if, you, if you'll like it, but basically Google Brain is more like Bell Labs, and DeepMind is more like if uh, what NASA was to the moon landing. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, that's very, it's obviously a very lofty analogy, but I, I liked it. I'd like to move to a paper that you co-authored called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. I noticed that paper had authors from many different organizations. I think I counted 16. What was it like working on a paper with co-authors from so many different organizations? Well, I really have to give credit to the first author, uh, David Rolnick, for making that work so well. He was just very thoughtful about how to organize this and how to make it work, very careful with um, planning timelines and setting expectations and breaking it down. And and we, we really broke it into different pieces. So each person is writing sort of a mini paper or a section that fits in with the other sections. And then there were many discussions of how to structure each section. So it worked well with the rest. And like, um, one thing we focused on was very much like communicating, um, what, like if I'm an expert in generative models, where can I go, uh, in the paper to apply those techniques to these problems? Um, and then also, uh, emphasizing what is the impact of each of the different areas? Um, and then in terms of just collaborating, we just had a lot of Skype meetings with, you know, 10 people on the call. Um, so it, it actually worked pretty well, though. I was, I was surprised. It, it was a pretty smooth experience. I really enjoyed that paper. It got a lot of attention, I think rightly so. And your, your section was tools for individuals. Is, is that right? Yes. I think some people might wonder if individual change can really make a difference. But he, in this paper, you note that um, individual behavior change can mitigate between 20 and 37% of global emissions from 2020 to 2050, which I thought was was really impressive. Yes. Now, that uh, estimate definitely includes um, a behavior change of farmers and including uh, agricultural practices of small-scale farmers. Um, so in terms of like whether you need to recycle every pop can and that's going to mitigate 37% of global emissions, I, that's not what we're saying. Um, but I think it's important that people... Uh, do recognize that some of their behaviors have a large effect on the climate. So, um, for example, I'm working with the Media Lab now on a program to offset the carbon emissions of flights um, because flights are incredibly carbon intensive. So we're trying to communicate this in a way that doesn't encourage people to actually fly more because offsets are not there yet. Um, when you actually buy offsets, what you're doing is you're funding climate-related causes like building renewable plants. But, of course, we have no effective way to actually recapture the carbon. Um so uh, we're trying to communicate this in a way like you can go to the site and it'll say something like, OK, you flew from Boston to San Francisco. That's equivalent to 187 days of powering a home um, or like so this many days of driving a car. And it's, it's very significant. So um, there are individual behaviors that, that do have a strong effect. 
Okay, thanks for putting that number into context. I'm also glad you mentioned agriculture because my day job is I work for AgFunder, which is a VC focused on agri-food tech. Um, we invest in companies that, that are making that space more efficient. Yeah, there's a lot of beneficial change that can be made in the agriculture space, so I'm really glad you're working on that. Since this is an RL podcast, I wanted to look at the ways that RL is is mentioned in this paper. And I see about 13 mentions, and this is summarized very helpfully, as you pointed out before the call in Table 1. Um but it's mentioned 13 times in the main text. Uh, I'm just going to read out the types of things that it, that it's being applied to. So smart grid, autonomous vehicle controllers for smoothing traffic, optimizing vehicle to grid power storage, building load modeling, smart buildings, scheduling energy use, cooling systems, predicting fire forest fire progression, geoengineering control, um, multi-agent planning coordination in climate change policy or mitigation. And in your section, scheduling household appliances. I know you're focused on the research end, but I wonder if you can comment, like, how far are we away from uh, deploying some of these things? Or maybe that's the point of this paper, is to encourage the readers to get this stuff out of the lab and, and out there really saving emissions. Yeah. Well, we've actually seen some evidence that RL, like one of the few... I hate to say this, but I've talked to several people and they say like, you know, deep learning in general, we've shown that it has many uh, beneficial real world applications. So we've seen like ConvNets, for example, be repeatedly useful in a number of real world problems, like for predicting tumor locations, for example, it's working. But um, arguably, deep RL has not been applied in the real world and really proven itself as being beneficial. So I think actually this is one area where there's a lot of potential for that. Um, there was some publications a couple of years ago about Google applying DeepRL to um, control its data centers and increasing the energy efficiency by something like 10%. But I found out later that um, actually they ended up not using DeepRL and they ended up using sim simpler control techniques because that turned out to be just more effective. Um, so there's still a lot of room to actually make progress in these areas. And in terms of like how close we are, um, in terms of like... Uh, the big thing here is if you can understand how to schedule uh, your home energy load or ideally like larger energy loads on the grid to be more efficient. So what's going on with grids right now is um, you want to use solar energy and you want to use wind energy. But of course, they're unreliable and unpredictable because, you know, if, if it's not a sunny day or it's not a windy day, then you don't have access to that. And we don't really have good battery systems yet to be able to um, maintain that. Uh, so often there's carbon intensive backup power in terms of coal power plants or other types of carbon intensive power. Um, and what you, you need to keep this actually running, uh, in the background so that you can spin it up quickly so you don't lose power, but there's a lot of potential for, um, bringing machine learning in to both predict when you will need the backup power. So you have to keep less in reserve, um, and also like optimizing how to schedule, uh, things on the grid when there's most solar and wind available. Um, so you're using the cleanest energy possible. Um, so how close are we? I think we need a lot more, um, uh, work to actually connect with, um, for example, operators of these grids. Um, we need to be able to collect data sets of residential home energy use to be able to think about like off policy learning from that data. So there's still work that needs to be done, but we're hoping to uh, spur continued research in this direction. And I guess this relates to what you said before about these systems being somewhat brittle at this point, and yet these types of problems being so safety critical. And so we need to somehow bridge that gap. Is that right? That's right. That's right. But I think DeepRL gets you something really powerful, which is um, generalizing over related states in when the state space is really high dimensional. 
And I don't think um, other methods are, are going to be able to do that in the same way. One part of this paper that jumped out at me at the end of the fourth page, it says, while we hope that ML will be useful in reducing the costs associated with climate action, humanity also must decide to act. I, I can't stop thinking about this line um, and that so much of machine learning today is focused on influencing people to click on ads. I can't help but wonder if some of that influence could be used towards climate action. Like would the idea of encouraging people to do something helpful uh, fall under the umbrella of effective computing? So firstly, I just want to say I'm actually really scared of the idea of using uh, machine learning to influence people's behavior. I don't like this idea that we're taking autonomy away from people um, using machine learning. And I don't think I think that um, creates a lot of um, resentment as it should. And the nice thing about climate change is, well, you know, there are there are political divides about it. Ideally, it doesn't need to be a bipartisan issue. Um, and I think when we talk about influencing people, it, it could worsen that conflict. Um, so I'm a little bit scared of that. Uh, and actually influencing people is not really the domain of affective computing. What my advisor Roz really sees the field as relating to is, um, ideally helping promote people's well-being through a deeper understanding, using machine learning to obtain a deeper understanding of, uh, for example, their stress or their happiness or, um, detecting these measures using like, uh, signal processing. Um, so I wouldn't say, yeah, Social influence on social networks yet yeah, not not so much. I I can say though something about um, social influence, and this is this is work that comes out of the media lab a lot. Actually, if you are familiar with Alex Pentland's work, uh, social physics, oh, yeah. um, there is a ah, it's good if you're if you're curious. But um, there is a lot of uh, work that shows that people, if you want to, uh, if you do want to spur behavior change, one of the fo- most effective ways to do that is actually uh, with social motivation. So people are incredibly motivated um, by their friends and their family um, and their social networks. So Alex Pentland has this really nice work that, for example, if you want someone to lose weight, you could try paying them for how much weight they lose, but that actually doesn't work very well. But if you pay their friend based on how much weight they're losing, that works incredibly well. Um, so you can see these really strong like social influence effects. So um, one thing that I think is, is really important with, with climate change is to just help raise awareness of some of these issues and hope that that spreads through the social network. So like that's what we're trying to do, for example, with this paper and with the carbon offsets program I mentioned earlier. If you don't mind, I'd like to move on to your social influence paper. Yeah, speaking of influencing agents, right? <laughs> this is easily one of my favorite RL papers of all time because it brings together so many things that I personally find so fascinating in a, in an incredible way. Uh, there's so many of them I had to make a list. So multi-agent RL in itself, these se- sequential social dilemmas, uh, intrinsic motivation in multi-agent RL, uh, model of other agents, uh, learned communication, causal DAGs in multi-agent RL, cooperation in multi-agent RL, and even empathy. To start us off, can, can you help us understand what is a sequential social dilemma? Yeah. So um, these are environments that basically try to extend prisoner's dilemma-like dynamics into a more complex, spatially and temporally extended environment. So the reason they're dilemmas is basically because each individual agent could always get higher reward by doing something greedy and sort of defecting on the other agents in the environment. Um, but if all the agents follow this defecting greedy policy, then they'll all do poorly. 
So an example is like a tragedy of the commons environment. And of course, this connects to climate change as well, but we have a very simplified version. Um, so there's some nice natural resources in the environment. So that's the, these apples that agents are trying to harvest. Um, but if uh, agents ha harvest the apples too quickly, then they don't grow back. And of course, if they harvest all the apples, no apples grow back. Um, so each individual agent always wants to sort of get more apples for itself. But if everyone's too greedy, then they deplete the resource. Um, and similarly, there's this cleanup game where uh, agents have to clean a nearby river to cause the apples to spawn, but um, it's partially observable, and as agents are cleaning the river, they can't see what's going on with the apples, and other agents can easily exploit the apples that they're creating. Would you describe the basic idea behind your paper? What I was interested in is this social learning. I think this is really important. So I was thinking about how could agents in a multi-agent system actually learn socially from other agents. Um, and what I wanted to do was uh, just make more realistic assumptions about how much agents could observe about the other agents in the environment. So we focused on just allowing agents to learn from the other actions that the agents are taking and not being able to view things like the agent's uh, internal reward function. Because if you think intrinsic rewards are important, then each agent is going to have a different reward function that's less realistic. And also, if you think about potential downstream applications of multi-agent RL, uh, we often think about something like autonomous driving. And so it's a pretty unrealistic assumption to think that the Tesla car is going to be able to learn something from the proprietary reward function of the Waymo car. But it can actually see what the Waymo car is doing in the environment, such as whether it's turning left. So what can these agents learn socially from each other just by observing each other's actions? And what we chose to do is to focus on rewarding agents for having a causal influence over the actions of another agent. And we actually show in the paper this, is relating, this relates to rewarding the mutual information between agents' actions. So the intuition is that this will help drive them to learn coordinated behavior. How did the idea for this paper come about? Uh, well, this is actually kind of a funny story. So I did my general exam for my PhD, which is just reading a ton of papers and then you're grilled on it uh, orally by your committee. And actually, um, Nando DeFridis was a committee member of mine. And he asked this really hard question. It was the first question of my general exam. It was like, what kind of social and emotional intrinsic motivations could agents have? Uh, because I was very fascinated by this curiosity paper. And he kind of put me on the spot and I didn't have a great answer at that moment. But I actually also had to do this 24 hour take home exam on the same. And he, he basically gave me the same question. So I stayed up almost 24 hours. It's like 4am, 5am, I'm drinking coffee, I'm trying to like come up with good answers for this. Um, and I'd been thinking about different ways you could learn socially from other agents, like could you learn from your proximity to other agents or something like this. And I thought about learning from the causal influence of your actions on another agent and how you would compute that. So I don't know if a podcast is the best way to like describe a formula, but if you're curious, you can definitely check out the paper. This idea that agents want to influence other agents, is there some basis for this in social science? Like do people and animals want this type of influence as well? Well, yeah, let me clarify exactly what um, the influence is. So basically I want to take an action that changes what your action is. Like is you're doing something that you wouldn't have done otherwise, just, just conditioning on my, on my action. Um, and the reason, is there a basis for this in humans um, I don't know about influence generally, but actually what we focus on the, in the paper is teaching agents how to communicate with this influence reward. And I think that's actually really compelling because um, 
that's kind of the purpose of communication, arguably. So you can read this book by uh, Michael Tomasello. That's all about cooperation in humans. And it specifically focuses on how children actually, when they're initially learning to communicate, what they actually want to do is be able to influence uh, their conversation partner. So if you can think about a young child that's hungry and it wants to have food, how does it... Um, how can it get that food? The best way is to learn to communicate that that's what it, it needs. Um, so, so there's this idea that learning to communicate is actually a way to learn to, uh, is, is learning to try to influence others. Um, so there's that basis. I did see a YouTube video you posted of your policies running uh, on this problem. But I wonder, could you describe for us, like qualitatively, how did your mechanism change how these agents behaved? Um, so actually, this, I think, was one of the most interesting and surprising results that we found. So we had given agents this reward for having um, uh, their actions, having influenced the actions of another agent. So this action, action, influence. Um, and But we were also giving agents a reward for still um, getting their own environmental reward. So like collecting apples. Um, and we observed, uh, for example, in a couple of cases, um, there was agents that were trained with the influence reward actually restricted the set of actions that they used in the environment to, to collect their reward. So in one case, this agent um, only actually used two actions ever in the environment, and it did something a little bit different from the other agents. So while the other agents uh, continue to explore the map when there were no apples present, they, they move around looking for more apples, this agent actually uh, stayed still. So it only ever moved on the map when there was an apple present. And what that allowed it to do is actually communicate whether apples were present via its actions. So when an apple was present, it would move. And if and because the environment was partially observable, another agent that couldn't necessarily see that apple, but could know that this agent was moving, would be able to understand that there must be apples present in the environment that it can't see. And that would change its intended behavior and thus allowing the influencer agent to gain influence by communicating information about the presence of, of food in the environment. Um, so we think this was really interesting that as uh, because the agents were trying to learn to influence each other, they actually learned to communicate with each other. And this is emergent behavior, emergent complexity that you didn't really design in. You're having to go in after the fact and figure out um, what's going on in there. Exactly, yeah. That is so interesting. I don't know if uh, you saw, there was a recent post about, I think it was by Andre Carpathy, but it was about the importance of like, if you're doing deep learning, really digging into the inputs, the outputs, exactly what the model is doing, very carefully visualizing and auditing what's going on with your model. Um, because uh, there's so many ways in which these models can go wrong and can fail to train. So just really digging in and, and seeing what the behavior of your, of your agent is can help a lot. And that helped a lot in this case, because otherwise I wouldn't have discovered how the influencer, like we had, I had for a long time, I think three weeks or a month, these beautiful plots showing that the influence reward was helping the agents learn to cooperate in this environment. But it wasn't convincing my team because they were like, why should influencing someone else help them? <laughs> how is this working? So, so I really had to dig in and understand like what, when was the influence reward happening and what was going on when the agents got the influence reward. I guess that's one interesting thing about RL. Like sometimes there's just no replacement for going in and and seeing what these policies are doing um, beyond just what the charts are telling us. I think it's really important. Was there any controversy in terms of deciding which experiments to run or was that pretty obvious to you early on? 
There was a little bit of controversy, honestly. So I came into uh, DeepMind and was working with this team headed by Joel Lebo that's very excited about um, these SSD environments. Um, and I think they were a good testbed for the uh, influence reward because they actually get at the problem of what the agents could, um, they're not, they're, they're not fully, like they're a dilemma. So agents aren't fully self-interested, but they're not fully cooperative. You're not just trying to optimize the group reward. So it's, it's interesting to see what the influence reward would do. But um, some of the feedback we got on the paper was that um, we should have tested in maybe more traditional RL environments. Maybe we should have tested in robot soccer, for example. Um, and I think that th that's very interesting follow-up work to do. And it's something I'm thinking about doing. I looked briefly at the GitHub repo for these SSDs and I noticed that there were some, you, you had some references to RLlib um, in your commits. Was that what you used to train it? Actually, no. So we, I used, I was a DeepMind, so I used their amazing internal infrastructure to train these models. Um, and it was actually uh, based on A3C, but actually a little bit closer to Impala because we did use a vtrace uh, correction. Um, but then when I left DeepMind, you can't touch the code anymore because it's not open source. Um, so I ended up using RLlib to uh, reproduce some of the code. And there's a not debugged secret fork of some repo that if you really need access to this code, you can email me about. Um, but I haven't had a chance to, to fully test it and make it pretty and get it ready to be fully released. Um, so that's something we're working on, uh, re reproducing it in open source. Great. I'm looking forward to that. I really got way more into SSDs after reading your paper and after thinking about the fact that, you know, um, real, real world SSDs are a serious problem in our world today. It seems to me that there's so much more we could do with them. And yet here we are in 2019. Uh, we're just starting to ask the basic questions about them. Sorry, I want to give a plug to my collaborator, Eugene Vinitsky, who um, was the real hero behind reproducing the SSDs themselves in open source. So you can see the GitHub repo uh, is, is something that he, it was largely him. So just want to give a shout out to, to Eugene. We've seen different types of intrinsic motivations now in RL, mostly focused on the single agent setting. Um, curiosity, as you mentioned, uh, empowerment. There was a paper that focused on inequity aversion, which is, I gathered... Uh, some sort of punishment for agents that um, are rewarded more than the others in a nutshell. Is that right? Yeah. Or um, rewarded less. They don't like to uh, be too different from the group. So if you're getting way uh, less reward than the rest of the group or way more reward, it makes the agent uh, disincentivized to do that. The paper pitched it as being like guilty or envious. Ah, okay. So that was inequity aversion improves cooperation in intertemporal social dilemmas. The mechanism that you came up with is that more effective than inequity aversion? And is there some way that they could work together? I just want to shout out also the first author of that paper is Ed Hughes. I think it's a great paper and you guys should check that out. Um, we do have a plot um, in our paper that, or a table that does show in uh, certain of our experiments, we exceed the maximum obtained in the inequity aversion paper in terms of total collective reward for all the agents. So that suggests it can be more effective, um, but it's not a direct comparison because the the amount of hyperparameter sweeping in my paper was not necessarily held constant with the previous paper. So I don't want to overclaim there. Um, but one thing that I would say in terms of effectiveness is that uh, our paper does not make an assumption which the inequity aversion paper does. The inequity aversion paper relies on agents being able to see each other's rewards, which as I mentioned earlier, is not necessarily a realistic assumption, especially if you think about different downstream applications of, of this type of research. So I think 
think it's more realistic that agents just see each other's actions, but can still learn from each other. And that that's, I think, a big contribution of our paper. If you had a model of other agents, maybe you could project your own understanding of rewards onto them and assume that their reward structure is similar to yours. Would that be a way around that? Yeah. So I'm really fascinated with this idea of, could you use yourself to model others? So there's this... Um, Modeling Others Using Oneself paper, actually, that came out, which is interesting to check out. Um, and, and I think this could really dovetail nicely with the influence reward. So one criticism of the influence reward is that you could influence an agent in a way that doesn't necessarily help it. So let's say I just get in your way and you have to walk around me. I've influenced you, but I haven't helped. So what I think would be really nice is to compute directional causal influence of your actions on another agent's value function. So say, I want to cause your value estimate, your estimate of total expected future rewards to go up. So I want to help you. But I don't want to have to be able to observe your value function because that's, that's pretty unrealistic. Why would you necessarily share that with me? So what if I were able to use my own value estimate to model your situation? So basically, I switch places with you in, uh, and how to do this might be uh, dependent on the environment. But essentially, I put you in my place and I substitute my action for your action, and I compute how that action would affect my value function. And I use that as an estimate to say how, my, how I think my action is affecting you, and I hope that I'm helping you and affecting you in a positive way. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there could be really interesting experiments there, like how well does this work as our rewards diverge? Like if you have different goals than I do, how well does just generally trying to help like imagine you as me uh, help you. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting direction to pursue. Would that get to the idea of the Tesla car, assuming that the Waymo car has a similar policy and value function? So it could imagine how it was influencing the other car's um, reward? A simpler mechanism might be to share rewards. Like I tried that in Pomerman. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really... I think that's a really promising um, assumption you can make if you're training a swarm of agents that all have the same goal. Um, and in some environments, that is the case. So maybe if you're doing robot soccer, every agent um, does want to on, on the same team wants to win the game. And that's straightforward to do. But I think if you think about the human world, we're not actually all jointly optimizing for um, the same shared reward function. We all have different goals. Um, and uh, in the same sense as like auto autonomous driving, like cars have some shared goals, like they don't want a traffic accident, for example, but they have different destinations and, and their their motivations are essentially different. So I think it's not always plausible to assume that reward is totally shared. But if reward wasn't shared, then how would you be able to figure out how it would affect their value function? Like your assumption that you could use your own model to put the other agent in your place and estimate the reward they would get from certain actions might not make sense because you're not sure what their goals are. Is that right? That's a great question. Yeah. And actually the experiments I want to do if I pursue this method is precisely that. So as our interests diverge, like as we follow increasingly different reward functions, how much does this actually help? Um, and in an environment where there's like, let's say we were in an environment where you wanted to eat apples and I wanted to eat bananas, but neither of us wanted to die or like fall off a cliff or be shot or something like this. Um, it may still be possible that my modeling my your reward as mine or my reward as yours still helps you in some way and is still beneficial. Mm. Um, but at what point does that fail utterly? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that would be an interesting experiment to do. With all this talk of SSDs, I can't help but wonder, could this research be used to help us solve our real world uh, so sequential social dilemmas like, like climate change? 
in terms of influence, you mentioned how it would be more effective if my friends were paid for me to lose weight. But in terms of systems, you said you, you don't want to see systems that uh, influence people in this way. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a little bit um, wary of the idea of building systems that uh, influence people. The problem with a lot of systems, AI systems that are currently meant to influence people um, is that we don't have the right metrics. Um, so if you just inf- you just ha- train YouTube to increase watch time, you actually get some pretty uh, questionable behavior. So I don't know if you saw, there was a recent article that um, YouTube recommendations tend to that are trained to optimize watch time end up recommending extremist content yes. because people click on it and they watch it for longer. So we just don't know what metrics we should be optimizing um, it, when we're trying to influence people to do something according to a metric. And so I think that's pretty dangerous. Um, but I do think social dilemmas in the sense that they are like a tragedy of the commons, which of course does relate to climate change, are, are something that's interesting to study. Um, the question is, how much can we take these? Like, how can we develop insights that we are able to take to larger scale problems uh, in a beneficial way? I think the general idea that multi-agent RL could be posing these social science questions or maybe answering them in different ways is super fascinating just on its own. I'm fascinated by that too. Absolutely. It almost seems like multi-agent RL might help us get down to the essence of some of these issues without the complexities of language and culture that are always part of social experiment approaches. This somehow helps us distill down to some mathematical essence of the problem. Yeah. And I think that's a valuable tool. Um, And if you think about like um, what game theory has done for economics, I think there's something similar there where you make a simplified version of the problem and develop um, concrete theory as to how this works in a simplified version. But I don't think that's the only uh, research that you should do. And there, you definitely need to fill in the gaps with more complex um, uh, research. And I, one thing that I think illustrates this is that actually the communication protocol that emerged as a result of the influence reward in these environments emerged precisely because they're a little bit more complex than a prisoner's dilemma. Um, and uh, there's partial observability and there's all these uh, complexities that actually led to that being an effective policy in order to gain influence. Um, and we might not have seen that behavior if we'd had a much more simplified environment. So I do think the, the demandingness of the environment definitely shapes the solution that you end up coming up with. And so while um, simplified versions are, are good for really concretely narrowing down aspects of the problem, it's not the only thing we should study. When I first encountered your paper, I was thinking a lot about uh, compassion and AI and whether it makes sense to design agents that are compassionate or what would that even mean? And I don't mean in terms of feelings, but in terms of behaving in ways that could be described as, as compassionate or caring. So I reached out to Rohan Shah at UC Berkeley, who does the AI alignment newsletter. It seems like he might know about these things. He replied by email and gave me permission to share. He said in part, your idea seems more about how the AI system should help us i.e. by being compassionate. I'd rather figure out how to make it so humans retain effective control over the AI so that they can decide what they want the AI to do. An image that came to mind for me was like imagining this supposedly caring robotic mother, but if it had a a faulty model, then it, it couldn't really be effectively compassionate. To do that well would take a incredible amount of intelligence. Yeah, I think this question is absolutely fascinating and actually connects a lot of the different things we've been talking about. Um, Because it connects, again, to the thing I mentioned 
earlier about if you don't have the right metrics, you have only clumsy metrics and you try to optimize for them, then you can actually do harm. So if you're like, if you optimize watch time, you can actually, you know, end up with really bad behaviors. So it, that's exactly right. If you have a, a robot mother that tries to be compassionate, but it's metrics of what you need are, are clumsy and incomplete, then it could actually be really damaging. Um, and actually, if you're, if you have a passion for, um, bad AI sci-fi, uh, TV shows and movies, um, <laughs> There's a show on Amazon Prime called Humans that actually investigates this, where they have like a, an elderly person that has a uh, humanoid robot that's meant to care for them. But the robot is made by the government and has very strict ideas of what is healthy for this person and uh, really restricts their autonomy in trying to be, quote unquote, compassionate. So I, I think there's something interesting there. Um, but that's actually so another part of my research has been trying to um, use reinforcement learning and other techniques to learn about human preferences from their implicit social cues. So can we improve a generative model by looking at people's facial expressions as they look at samples from the model? Or can we improve a dialogue model by uh, looking at people's sentiment in terms of how they respond to the model? Um, and I'm kind of interested in this because I think if you really... Um, get at these underlying signals of what people's mental states are and, and you try to really get at what people's current and ongoing preferences really are, that helps um, alleviate some of these issues. So you can think about human preferences as this non-stationary signal that if you do something clumsy and wrong repeatedly, uh, you will no longer be satisfying their preferences and you will no longer get a good reward signal. Um, so if I tell the same joke to you once and you laugh, great. But if I tell it to you three times, you're not going to be laughing anymore, right? So to the extent that we could really sense people's underlying preferences and optimize for those, that seems like we would be getting closer to uh, a beneficial AI. Ah, so it's like having humans in that real-time control loop. That's really interesting. Yeah, so I basically agree full, wholeheartedly with what Rohan was saying, that people need autonomy to be able to control what these, these models are doing. Towards the end of your paper, you mentioned how uh, your influence mechanism might be used to prevent collapse in hierarchical RL. Could you say more about what you mean by that and how this mechanism might help? In a hierarchical model, you have what I would call the top level of the hierarchy that's deciding on sort of a more abstract policy. Like, let's say I want to go get the cup. And then you have like a lower level of the policy that's supposed to be implementing how to like take the actions to go get the cup, like move here, move here, grab, etc. Um, the issue about collapse is basically that um, we don't really see this behavior em emerging. So like we don't actually learn several different options that can be invoked at different times. It's just that there's one option that the high level always chooses, for example, and the low level do does everything. Or we can see the reverse happening as well. Um, uh, and then the issue of like ignoring the high level uh, option can also happen. So if the low level's just doing everything, then whatever option is being chosen at the high level um, is not being actually used by the, the low level of the model, if, if that makes sense. Um, so the idea that influence could help uh, to not ignore the high level option is to say that we can compute the causal influence of the option chosen by the high level on the low level policy and try to optimize for that. So even both parts of the model could be rewarded if there's more influence between the high-level option chosen and the low-level policy. Um, so basically saying there should just be more mutual information between um, the high-level option and the low-level policy. When I first read your social influence paper, I was reminded of another paper uh, about autocurricula. 
I, th- I think that paper is the only place on archive where that word is mentioned. The title is Auto Curricula and the Emergence of Innovation from Social Interaction, a Manifesto for Multi-Agent Intelligence Research by Lebo et al. You mentioned you're familiar with this paper. Could your mechanism be used to help us move towards autocurricula? Or or maybe you could start by describing what, what is autocurricula? Yeah, so I actually really love this paper. So again, uh, Joel Lebo is the first author, and Ed worked on it as well. Um, so it's a really interesting paper that basically pulls together a lot of um, sociology and social science research that talks about why, um, why social demands actually drive human cognitive development. And another really interesting paper that I love that you could check out that's a bit older, that's directly from the, the sociology literature, is called The Social Function of Intellect. Um, and basically, both papers are arguing that... Oh, and actually, you could read... Um, this very popular book now, of course, is um, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, which also now, makes the yeah. same kind of arguments. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's... You know, that book has some overclaiming, but I really... It's a fun read. Um, so... What's going on with all these is that they're basically saying that um, uh, humans, when they integrate into larger social groups, that's actually very cognitively demanding because you have to understand all the different social relationships um, and maintain that. And and actually, if you're not able to do that, you can't organize into larger social groups. So, for example, Sapiens makes the claims claim that Neanderthals were only able to uh, organize into groups of like 50, but Sapiens were able to organize into groups of 200. And that's why they were able to uh, genocide all the other proto-human species. So fun spoiler alert. I don't know if you want to include that. But um, so the the autocurricula paper is, again, making this case that uh, in a social environment, if you want to cooperate with other agents when there are inc- increasingly complicated social institutions, then you need to have a larger brain or you need to have better cognitive abilities. And then as your cognitive abilities get better, you can make more complicated social institutions. So there's this kind of driving feedback loop. And then there's this other type of feedback loop where uh, if you want to compete with another agent, like out-compete, an, uh, out-compete another human for resources or um you know, romantic partners or whatever, then you need to have uh, more intelligence as well. So this competition drives uh, greater intelligence. Um, And so the idea of this auto curricula is that um, the social demands of an environment, as other agents learn and get better, in order to work with them in their environment, you will also have to learn and get better. So it's, I think they mean by auto curricula that this curriculum is, is developing naturally and automatically without a researcher having to engineer the curricula, but curriculum, but it's actually coming from the agents in the environment itself. And we could potentially see this happening in the social influence paper because, like, in order to influence you, I have to have some understanding of what you're interested in and why you're taking the actions you are and and be able to take actions that or, or communicate information that you will find useful. The autocurricular paper mentions the problem problem, uh, the idea that researchers have this problem of where they have to keep creating new problems for the agents to solve. Uh, and I was reminded of... Um, Jeff Kloon's team at Uber AI uh, published a paper on what they call Poet, which automatically makes different variations on environments, which seems like it's trying to solve the same thing, um, although autocurricula somehow seems more elegant in that it's just this one environment that provides everything that's needed for this ex- intelligence explosion to happen. Is that right? Or are we to think of this as one environment where that keeps on running and the the agents are just getting smarter and smarter? Um, I don't think, 
the autocorrelate means like it's restricted to any single environment. I think it's the idea that as you have other agents in the environment that are either working with you or competing with you, that will provide a curriculum in itself. So with Poet, you can think of the other agent as the environment and it's trying to make the environment harder for you and you're trying to adapt to the environment as it's changing. Um, so that, that could be the autocurricula could occur in any multi-agent environment where you're trying to work with other agents, um, it, either in a competitive way or in a cooperative way. Would you say autocurricula is entirely a theoretical idea at this point, or are there early versions of this running? There are early versions working. I've been doing interviews lately uh, with different companies, and someone was able to show me some early results that I can't talk about, but you can look out for those um, happening soon. Um, but yeah, so people are thinking about this and I think it's quite interesting. So the, the autocurricular paper itself, as it titles itself, is just a manifesto. It's just putting these ideas forward. It's not necessarily showing, um, them in a concrete way, but, um, hopefully it can inspire other researchers to think about multi-agent as a way to drive intelligence broadly. Do you feel like your influence mechanism would be useful for autocurricula? Potentially. So, if you think about um, as agents uh, get more complex and they learn more about the environment itself and they're more self-sufficient, it would be more and more difficult to influence them by providing useful information. So you might have to work harder to find some information that they don't know that you could use to influence them. Um, so there could be something there. Thinking back to the environments that you used in your paper, the sequential social dilemmas uh, like harvest and cleanup, I'm wondering how much more complex do they need to be to support autocurricula? I'm thinking like in physics, a two-body problem is not hard to solve, but add one more and make a three-body problem and suddenly it becomes um, hard to solve. You get this emergent complexity. So in the same way, maybe there's some small steps that we could take that could get us to an autocurricula type environment, though I'm not really clear what that would be. I'm not totally clear what that would be yet either. And I think Inevitably, you do run up against the limitations of a simple environment, even in terms of like developing more and more complex social policies. Because if there is a point at which you, you your policy saturates and you've sort of solved the environment, then um, it's not fair. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so, so how to develop an environment that basically enables um, continuing social development. And like, I think you mentioned like, uh, developing social institutions that are more and more complex. That sounds really cool. And maybe there's something to just like, um, intrinsic motivation in itself. If you had an interesting set of intrinsic motivations and kind of, um, an unbounded environment, um, that could be really, really cool. Can I ask, who do you look up to in the research world? Do you have mentors? Um, so I do have, um, definitely have mentors. Um, but before I get into that, I do just want to give out a shout out to Chelsea Finn because I actually definitely look up to Chelsea Finn and I think she's really inspiring for a lot of women entering the field and she's just such a badass. So she's great. Um, but in terms of mentors, there's been a lot of people that have helped me along the way and I really want to, uh, great, be grateful to them and acknowledge them. I kind of feel like I'm giving my thesis acknowledgements all over again. I just did this in my defense, but um, I do want to thank uh, Doug Eck at Google Brain, who um, was my manager for a very early internship and has really believed in me and supported me. And that's been incredibly valuable. I want to thank Nando. He's been great. As I mentioned before, he asks all the hard questions and really gets me to think. Um, I really want to thank Joelle Pinot um, because she is on my thesis committee and has worked with me in great detail and given me 
really detailed technical feedback in a way that I found to be incredibly valuable. And of course, I have to thank my advisor, Rosalind Picard, because she's just been incredibly supportive and kind and great to bounce ideas off of. And I really wouldn't have had the same PhD if I didn't have such an understanding and amazing advisor. So I want to give thanks to her. Any words for people who look up to you? Oh, wow. Um, well, I guess that's kind of a weird question because uh, I still think of myself as mainly looking up to other people. But um, I would say that it just takes hard work. I remember um, you really just have to stick with it. Like I remember in my master's degree very early taking my first machine learning course and having forgotten a lot of linear algebra since early uh, undergrad and having to like go back and take Coursera courses in linear algebra and remember, okay, how do eigenvalues work again and slog through that and, you know, slog through the textbooks and just read the papers. And, you know, some things you just don't get right away and some things are confusing at first and you just really have to keep at it and keep working. Um, And if you keep trying, eventually things work out. Um, Even if it's, even if it's frustrating in the short term, don't think like, I can't do this. Just keep trying. Not every, no one can do these things just at first. Would you tell us about future directions for you? Like, what do you find interesting these days? And what do you think you want to do next? Well, let me give you the pitch because I've been thinking a lot about this. So basically, I want to integrate the stuff that I've worked on before into a much more cohesive direction. And I'm really fascinated by by this idea of multi-agent cooperation. And this. I think I have many ideas for how to do social learning in a multi-agent system. But what I think would be really cool is if you could train a policy that's able to quickly um, adapt to a new agent and dynamically coordinate with it in an ad hoc way. And then you could take that policy and generalize it to coordinating with a human. Um, because I think there's really interesting challenges there and then fine tune your policy by learning from the human. So I think uniting these directions of learning from humans and learning from other agents into this social learning direction is what I'm really excited about. Do you have any plans to take a break now that you're done your PhD? Oh my goodness. Yes. I, uh, have been planning to take a break since June, but so far it hasn't materialized. But um, very soon, I hope to be able to actually take some time off. And I really want to go hiking. I want to do like a 10-day backpacking trip, uh, kind of by myself, disconnect, turn off the phone for a while, be in the woods. So that's the plan. Natasha Jakes, I've learned so much from your work and from and from you. This has been a real treat for me. I'm really looking forward to reading whatever you, you come up with next. So thanks thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with us all today. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is so fun talking about this stuff. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 